Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. The federal government made it official last week. It's replacing its aging Aurora patrol fleet with Boeing's P-8A Poseidon aircraft. The Auroras have played a critical role in Canadian intelligence gathering. For example, they were used to identify ISIS targets in Iraq, and they're the same aircraft that the Chinese military has been aggressively intercepting over the Pacific. The deal for the new planes will cost just over $10 billion, with the first of the 14 aircraft expected to arrive in 2026. The announcement comes as the military continues to juggle multiple challenges from aging equipment to major recruitment shortfalls. That message hit home this week in a viral YouTube video that was made by the top commander of the Royal Canadian Navy. The RCN faces some very serious challenges right now that could mean we fail to meet our forced posture and readiness commitments in 2024 and beyond. The RCN is in a critical state, with many occupations experiencing shortages at 20% and higher. To talk about the challenges and solutions, hopefully, facing the Canadian military, I'm joined by Defence Minister Bill Blair. Welcome to the programme, Minister Blair. Thank you very much. Good morning, Mercedes. That was a pretty striking video by Admiral Topshi. It's not often that we hear senior generals or senior admirals come out and be that stark in their assessment, that, that they may not be able to defend the country. They may not be able to meet their goals. What did you make of Admiral Topshi's video, and, and do you agree with his assessment? Well, first of all, I, I work very closely with Admiral Topshi and with, with General Air, the Chief of Defense Staff, General Kenny in charge of our Air Force, and, and General Paul in charge of the Army. And and, and I think it's important that we, we have, among each other, with each other, but also with Canadians, candid, stark, and, and, and frank conversations about what is required in order for them to to uh, complete the mission of, of, of keeping Canada safe and also to living up to our very significant international commitments to, to NATO, to NORAD, and, and in the Indo-Pacific. Now, we ask a great deal of the Canadian Armed Forces, and and I think for a, a number, and I don't want to sort of sort of relitigate the past, but I think for a very long time, uh, we, we did not make the necessary investments in the platforms, first of all, that our military works on, the the combat, the surface combatant ships that Admiral Topshi refers to, the, the P-8, our, our multi-mission aircraft that the Air Force uh, was able to acquire yesterday, and some of the some of the basic equipment of, of of tanks and and artillery and ammunition that the army needs all of these things require significant new investments minister you you acknowledge that we're we're living in a more dangerous world we are watching uh, aggression from china we are watching the war in the middle east we are watching russia's war in ukraine and yes, you are replacing some platforms, but they are all platforms that were flagged as in need of replacement at least eight years ago when your government took over. At the same time, we're facing dire shortages. I've spoken to a number of senior commanders, and, and in fact, General Wayne Eyre said this at committee. If there was a war, we only have three days worth of ammunition. We're required to have 30 by NATO. We don't have anywhere near that. We're 27 days short. Why has your government allowed the critical shortfall of ammunition and other materials that are required to defend Canada? Yeah, well, let me, let me be really clear. One of the jobs the prime minister has given me is to to try to untie some of the knots of, of military procurement, to to actually work with the ICED minister and with our procurement minister um, to, to, to create you know a better supply chain of ammunition and to make sure that, that we can actually affect those acquisitions in a timely way. We've also been challenged, and I think General Lair would acknowledge this, because we've also made very significant commitments, not just us, but all of our NATO partners and, and allies in supporting 
Ukraine and its fight against Russia, and that's taken some of that supply off. But 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 I don't disagree with you at all. And and it's and it's something that frankly, when I took over this position, I sat down with the chief of defense and the deputy minister of of of, of the national defense. And and we've been working on what what have been their challenges in acquiring the ammunition, and and some of it is is resource, but an awful lot of it is this process, and so on. Making that process work more effectively and get in and, well, and, and securing I, I, you know, those Minister, supply chains is a critical part of what we have to do. I, I hear you on Ukraine and, and the material has been given on ammunition, but other countries have bought this. In fact, other countries are spending much more than Canada is. They're increasing their defense spending. Canada is making cuts to the defense budget, which I know your government says aren't cuts, but the definition of cuts is usually when you take money out and you don't put it back in, which is effectively what is happening. Why, in light of acknowledging the shortage of personnel in the dangerous world that we live in, are you not spending more? Well, and, and, and let me just sort of articulate that because I, I don't think you've quite captured exactly what we're doing with defense spending. In 2017, we, we brought forward a, a plan, Strong, Secure and Engaged, to increase defense spending by 70% over an eight-year period. We're six years into that and we're right on track. Defense spending has actually gone up. But you're at 1.23%, which is well below the 2% NATO target. And, and but we're moving forward. The, 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 what I, the point I want to make is we're putting significantly new resources in. But we also acknowledge because the world was changing, and particularly after the invasion of Ukraine, the increasingly aggressive posture taken on by both Russia and China, and and some of the obligations in the Indo-Pacific, in our in our own Arctic, and of course in NATO. We recognize that we have to continue to invest even more, more than we said in, in strong, secure, and engaged in 2017, and that's and that's why we have brought forward um, a, a plan that's very much in discussion right now in, in, within our government about making new, significant new investments. I've, I I hope I've made it very clear um, publicly that we recognize we must do more. We're going to do more, but there's also some context in 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 the doing that more because there is a fiscal situation in Canada that I have to, I have to be realistic about what can be achieved. We're spending taxpayers' dollars, Mercedes, and I've always tried to be very careful when we do that. So one of the things I was asked to do by Treasury Board is to to take a look at how we administer some of our processes in in how in in, in our financial administration, um, in in our human resources administration, in consulting services and professional services and executive travel and a broad range of things that, over time, bureaucracies tend to become bureaucratic and and I think there there is always a need for people like myself to go in make sure that we are being as efficient as possible in delivering the defense capabilities that CAF needs and that the country needs. So then why not take that money and put it back into the operations and maintenance budget? Well, first of all, I'm, we, we have a significant budget for maintenance and for operations. But I've it's a shortfall it from what we need, according to all these senior generals and admirals who are saying that they, they don't have what they need to, to do what's required. Well, let's not, if, if you don't, but, but let's not mix up apples and oranges. There, there's a fairly significant expenditure of, of administra in, in administration, and my job is to make sure that we do that as efficiently and as cost-effectively as possible. And at the same time, there's a very significant portion of that budget which is dedicated to that maintenance and that supply. Last year, the Canadian Armed Forces was was unable to spend over two billion of their budget, and it's because their pro the processes of, proc of procurement um, are not as efficient as they need to be. And so, it's not a matter of us not giving them enough resources. It's it's a matter of 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 making sure that those processes work for them. So that they're able to do that maintenance, they're able to acquire that ammunition, they're able to to make the investments that they need to make, and then most importantly is solving this deficit of people. Because the real strength of the Canadian Armed Forces is the men and women who serve in it. Speaking of 
investments in, in platforms and technologies in February uh, of this year. I spoke to Minister Anand when she was the defense minister, and we were talking about the tanks that Canada sent to Ukraine. She told me it was top of her priority list, basically, to get to work on replacing those tanks. And as you know, there's a, a very large number of Canadian tanks in, in Latvia right now as well. What's the status of the replacement project for the tanks? I, I haven't seen anything come out about it. I haven't seen it go to tender. Has your government started the process of replacing them? We're well away. Of course, we've identified you know all, all of our requirements with with respect to those tanks. We know what we want, the Leopard tank, and 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 we've we've got. We're also making investments in maintaining the ones we've got, but we do know we need more. Uh, the, the procurement process is, as I've already mentioned to you, uh, Mercedes, first of all, I, I don't talk too much about where we're at in particular processes because I want to make sure that I don't do anything that interferes with, with those contracts. But at the same time, what, what I'm finding is, and, and I, th I think you're, you're aware of this, and most Canadians are, some of these procurement contracts take an incredibly long time to execute. And, and the time between when the Canadian Armed Forces defines the need and we're when we're actually be able to get them in the door it it, it takes sometimes an inordinate amount of time and an acceptable amount of time so it's it's we're trying not only to manage the cost but to, to also manage the time that it takes to deliver them that again is 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 one of my responsibilities um, I've, i'm working with some of the best people i know in government and in the canadian armed forces to as i say untie some of these knots i i, I was very pleased yesterday we were able to we we heard very clearly from the, the royal canadian air force about what it needed in a multi-mission aircraft to replace the cp-140 the auroras they identified th their requirements and and we determined that the only plane that that, that currently was available and that that met all of those requirements was the P8, and although it was a procurement not without its challenges, I was very very pleased to be able to 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 announce to the Canadian Armed Forces and to the Royal Canadian Air Force that we were able to acquire those planes for them and that they were going to be getting them within the next two years before. The, the CP-140s age out of, out of out of service, and so that's our responsibility is to get jobs like that done. And and, and I was very pleased that yesterday we were able. I hope we, we were able to send a signal about our commitment to deliver for the Canadian Armed Forces. We're going to continue to deliver for them because they deliver for us. Thank you very much for joining us today, Minister, and uh, good luck with I'm sure what is a, a difficult job ahead of you. No, it's the best job in government. Thanks very much, Mercedes. With numbers out last week that the economy is slowing and unemployment is up, thinking about retirement feels like a pipe dream for a lot of us right now. And that's backed up by a new report that found the majority of people near retirement age are not financially ready to leave the workforce. Only 14% are retirement ready. 31% will need to rely on public income like CPP and old age security, about 55% will have to make lifestyle cuts to avoid outliving their own savings, and a staggering 73% will face financial hardship if they require long-term care. And for young Canadians who are struggling to afford a home and find jobs, is retirement even a possibility? To talk about all of this, I'm joined by Paul Kershaw, the founder of Generation Squeeze and a professor at UBC's School of Population and Public Health, and Laura Tamblin-Watts, the CEO of CanAge, a national seniors advocacy organization. Good morning to both of you. Uh, not the cheeriest of topics, but an important one. We, you know, we were talking about this around the office and just saying whether you're at the end of your career and thinking about retiring or recently retired and wondering if you can afford to stay there, or for some of the younger people who work in 
our bureau wondering if they're ever going to be able to retire. It's not a particularly rosy and, and optimistic outlook. Paul, can you start us off with giving us a, a, a sense of where this is going and, and how worried we should be? Well, I think that there are two themes that we need to be aware of. On the one hand, for a younger demographic, I do increasingly worry about the pressures that they will face later on in their aspirations to retire, because the reality is that for young folks today, hard work doesn't pay off like it used to. They will go to post-secondary more, pay more for the privilege, to land jobs that actually uh, often are paying less um, after adjusting for inflation. And then we all know they're facing dramatically higher housing prices that increasingly lock them out of ownership and their consolation prize is lousy rising rents. And all of that means it's so much harder to save for retirement down the road. And on top of that, then we have to think about today's aging population. These are our family members, this is my mom, my in-laws, etc. And for that demographic, the data are somewhat positive that they have some of the lowest rates of poverty in the country, the most wealth, a good amount of housing security. But decades ago, our governments kind of let them and let us down because we didn't work out how to pay effectively for a healthy retirement for an aging demographic driven by the baby boom. And if I can just add one more observation for your, your listeners, you know, back in the day when baby boomers were young adults, there were seven working age residents to pay for every retiree. Now boomers have every reason to expect, I want the same if not better benefits, but there are just three working age residents to pay for every retiree. And that's adding some risks to what can we do to protect that security for our, our retired loved ones, but it's also putting a lot of pressure on younger taxpayers. Laura, what happens when you, you've worked hard your whole life, you've saved appropriately for what you were expecting, but now things are more expensive, people are living longer, especially women uh, often outlive and make less while they're working than men. Um, what is the scenario right now for senior Canadians? Well, it's not as rosy as we would wish. You know, I know that the way that we calculate how people are doing in terms of poverty index and so on is there. And with those numbers, older adults on the whole look like they're doing pretty well. But the reality of the circumstance is we measure the wrong stuff. And what that means is the measurements are based on a family of four in kind of their middle years. And the basket of goods and services that we count are not usually the basket of goods and services that seniors need. So care, the cost of care, home care, care provision, all of that is not in the basket of goods. When we're thinking about what we need as older people, including medications and so on that are not covered, those are also not in the basket of goods. And what it means as well is that not only we're counting the wrong stuff, that they're becoming much more expensive at a time when debt was cheap. So many older people are very much in debt. Boomers are the most indebted generation we've ever had. Some of them are retiring with student debt, let alone mortgage debt. So they've accrued a lot of debt, but their money didn't make much because interest rates were historically no. Now the cost of debt has gone up. And their cost of living has gone up, and often they're not being able to make as much money in the door. So it is actually a very poor situation. Paul, what mm -hmm. happens for the younger generation? And, and I see this with, with a lot of my friends. Um, delay having children. You know, you're, you're establishing your career. It's expensive. You're waiting until later. And now you're in a scenario where you are both caring for potentially young children or having to pay for childcare, and at the same time worrying about aging parents who may also require care or long term. Uh, it seems like a tremendous financial burden. And 
where does the money come from just to get by day to day when you're dealing with those competing fam not competing, you know what I mean, but family members at opposite ends of their life spectrum that, that both require a lot of care and a lot of money? Yeah, well, it's the right question. And I love so much how you corrected, like it's competing. It's actually what we have, I think, is a lot of love. And there's a lot of solidarity between older and younger family members and how to work it out so that not only do we make our families work for all generations, but we need to make our country and our government budgets work for all generations. And I'm, I'm on board with Laura saying we often aren't right now measuring the right things. Um, and I am sympathetic to the fact that many people right now might be having more debt in retirement, but we need to need to put that in context. That debt will often be in the context of one's housing. And um, well, th there has been a little bit of a trickle up in the number of boomers who are retiring with mortgage debt. Typically, that's because they have been refinancing homes and purchasing additional homes because they are making a great deal of wealth coming from the housing system. And so I think Laura is right. When we measure how people are doing, we need to move beyond income and think increasingly about wealth because you can be a widow with a low income of say around $25,000 a year. And that will be akin to like just above the poverty line and just above getting the guaranteed income supplement in this country. And we might think that that individual is really financially struggling. And if they're a renter, they absolutely are. But if they're a homeowner in Halifax, in Halifax or Hamilton or Victoria or Vancouver or Toronto, they might be people whose homes that they own outright are worth a million, if not many millions more. And so that's fundamentally different than say, you might think a young a young lawyer making 250,000s, they're the top earners in the country. But in some instances, they can barely afford to rent a two bedroom place. And so we need to more and more be thinking about how do we measure affluence in this country? How do we measure our ability to contribute to the services we need in retirement and the services we need like childcare, like post-secondary, like affordable housing? We have to really come to terms with how what we want how we are going to pay for what we want and ensure that we're not leaving large unpaid government bills via deficits for our kids and grandchildren. Laura, what is happening for people who are, are retiring now? I've heard some people contemplating that they, they may have to come back to work because the amount they saved that they thought would be enough now, now isn't enough. Are you seeing a, a lot of that or is that more a fear than something that's actually manifesting? Oh, no, we're completely changing it. And actually, that's okay to change it as long as we're talking about people who are economically secure and increasingly were not. What it means is that people not only are living longer, they also need to work longer. They, the idea of retirement at 65 came out of a time where people died at 67. That's actually when we created our CPP. It was only expected that you would live two years and then you would die. Now we're looking at a third of our life. It won't be surprising for anyone to say that people need more money and they need more security. And, there are some barriers that we need to call out. One of the biggest barriers for people who want to stay in the workforce longer, even though we are in the biggest labor crunch we've ever had in Canada, you know, ageism is playing a huge role. And so folks are having a hard time getting back into the working world, the paid working world. And then we also have these additional layers of complexity around things like the fact is most caregivers for older people are other older people. It's not actually the generations below. And so they're mm. trying to figure out how they can balance providing free care for spouses, friends, or even, you know, parents in their 90s, while at the same time, they don't have the accumulated wealth that they need to. The last piece I just wanted to share is 
There's a structural problem around housing too. Quite right, yes, many people have accumulated wealth or equity in their house, but we don't actually have places for them to go to that are age-friendly and accessible. And so most rental places are not appropriate for older people. They're not easily able to downsize and stay in their communities. Many of them, if they're going to sell, are going to have to move far outside of the area that they are into something much more remote, more challenging to get the services and, and health care that they need, where transportation becomes a huge issue. So, again, it's not just about the cost of housing. It's about the cost of including people in communities. And we're failing in that. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly big questions ahead about what that looks like. And uh, I'm sure whether or not <laughs> those in my generation and younger will ever be able to retire. Paul and Laura, thank you both very much for joining us. I'm sure we'll be talking about this again soon because uh, it is an issue that quite literally affects everyone. Thank you. Now for one last thing. Last week, yet another powerful national security organization faced serious allegations of sexual misconduct and a toxic workplace culture. Whistleblowers from Canada's spy agency, CSIS, told the Canadian press that the British Columbia office of CSIS was a, quote, dark and disturbing place. The allegations included harassment and rape. It's not the first time we've heard concerns about CSIS. During the global pandemic, Global News reported on allegations of toxic workplace culture, racism and harassment by senior managers, as well as a demoralized staff. Those who work in national security are vital to this country, and they make a lot of sacrifices. Yet rooting out sexual misconduct and ensuring oversight of powerful and shadowy organizations seems to be an ongoing challenge. Those who defend the country deserve better. And here at the West Block, we have more reporting to come in coming weeks on this subject to hold those organizations accountable. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block.